Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck the house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Now, for those of you who are around my age and maybe grew up going to church, this may be one of the most familiar of all the Bible stories. Why? Because of a catchy little Sunday school song that ended dramatically when the second house, the one that wasn't built on a solid foundation, collapsed and went splat. Now, I loved that song as a child, and it worked. It communicates the basics of the story in a way even a child can understand. And yet all these years later, I'm finding out there's even more to the story than I ever imagined. Now this story's unique. Among the stories that Jesus told, it's one of the few that doesn't end but begins with the moral of the story. Right up front, Jesus says, listen to me and do what I say. And then he gives this metaphor, this simile really, that drives home his point in a memorable way. He begins with a rhetorical question. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, many of those coming to hear Jesus called him Lord. Now, just so you know, this is a term of respect. It's similar to our word, sir, and yet it also signifies something much more. For Jesus, it meant that they understood his authority, specifically his divine authority. So Jesus is saying, if you think I'm divine, why don't you do what I ask you to do? Now, there are all sorts of reasons why people may have failed to follow through. Maybe they were lazy. Maybe they were distracted. Maybe others thought that obedience was optional, that all the things that Jesus was telling him were just good suggestions. And maybe a few simply didn't accept his authority. Whatever the reason, what they're doing is they're saying, for example, that they believe in Jesus, but then failing to follow through on the way of life that he taught them. The real question then for us is not whether we hear what Jesus says, but whether we put it into practice. The real question is not whether we hear what he says, but whether we do what he asks us to do. It isn't whether we know facts about Jesus, or even whether we believe or say we believe in Jesus. It's whether we obey. So the moral of the story is listen and do. But what does that mean, and why does it matter? To answer these questions, Jesus tells this little story, this vivid real-world comparison between building a house and our relationship with God. So he assumes up front that all of us have to build a house, and the house he's talking about is our lives. Everyone has goals and priorities and values that we live by, whether we articulate them or not, and he equates that to the foundation that we build our lives on. So what have you built your life on? Is it money and possessions? Your career or a relationship? Your children or a political party? Or even just having a good time? These are the kinds of things that we typically build our lives on. So you see, every home has a foundation. And according to Jesus, the foundation that we build our lives on really matters. What's interesting is that the two houses that Jesus describes 
are nearly identical. In fact, from the outside, you couldn't tell the difference. But there's a difference, a big difference as it turns out, and that is that the wise build their homes on a firm foundation, on the rock. The others are lazy, and they skip that step. Now, just a little cultural background. Palestine is dry much of the year. During the summer and fall, the sun bakes the clay soil until it's dry and hard, kind of almost like ceramic tile. But in the winter, the rains come, soften up the clay until it becomes unstable. So a wise builder will dig down through the clay to the rock below, and it's hard, time-consuming work. But once completed, the house will stand no matter what comes. What matters, Jesus is saying, is the foundation. It has to be solid. For a house, that needs to be bedrock. For our lives, the rock is Jesus. He needs to be our foundation. Now, the foundation in Jesus' words are listening to what I say and putting it into practice. So hearing and doing are like doing the hard work of digging through the clay, getting down to bedrock, and laying a firm foundation for the house. But some, no matter what, how much they may have been warned, ignore this advice. Now, maybe they're overwhelmed or just plain lazy. Some may decide to take a shortcut, even if it's short-sighted and unwise. And so why is it unwise? It's unwise because inevitably every house faces a storm. And when the storm comes, even a well-built house, one built on, in the summer on hardened clay, can move. And slowly, it starts to to collapse. Eventually, it completely implodes on itself. And the same is true in our lives. The only thing inevitable about life is that hard times, the storms of life will come. And when they do, the key variable isn't the house, it's the foundation. Now, in the story, the storm hits both houses. Let me just repeat that. It hits both houses. And here's why that's important. Faith in Jesus doesn't protect us from storms. But he does promise that our lives, our house, if we have built on the firm foundation, will be able to withstand whatever we face. Jesus made a number of promises while he was here on earth, but here's one promise he didn't make. He didn't tell us that we would be healthy, wealthy, and live carefree lives. In fact, right here he tells us we will face difficulties. Storms will come. But if we built our homes on the right foundation, built our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ, the foundation, that obedience to him, we will be able to withstand whatever comes. So when the storms come, they reveal the quality of our relationship with Jesus. You see, it doesn't matter, at least matter a lot, how much we know. It matters whether we obey what we know. It doesn't matter if we say nice, polite, enthusiastic, or even doctrinally correct things about Jesus. It matters whether we choose to follow him. That's really important. Some give off the misleading impression that if we follow Jesus, our lives will be easy and carefree. So when storms come, we wonder, has God failed us? Or we even wonder if we've been doing the wrong thing or in the wrong place. But this is not a story about how to avoid storms. It's about building a life that withstands them. Again, the two houses Jesus describes are virtually identical from the outside. But one's built on the rock and one isn't. So when a storm comes, the house on the rock is strong enough to take the wind and the rain and the flowing water, and the other house is flattened. Now, we're like these houses. Either you build on the solid foundation of listening to the words of Jesus and putting them into practice, or you don't. 
If you've done what Jesus asks of you, when the storms come, you'll make it. But if you haven't listened and obey, you'll crumble under the pressure. So in peaceful times, we forget all about the foundation. But when the storms come, the foundation is all that matters. So Jesus' story serves as a warning. It's foolish not to listen to him, not to put what he says into practice. It's as foolish as spending hundreds of thousands of dollars building a house without a proper foundation. So the true test of our lives isn't how we do in the good times, but how we do when things go wrong. When a dream dies, or when health disappears, or when you lose someone dear, or someone turns on you, or when you fail. Build your foundation on the life and teachings of Jesus. And the storms may rattle the windows, but they will not shake the house. The crucial choice here is between obedience to what Jesus says and disobedience. Now that raises some questions and objections. And let's talk about the first of them. And that is, what if what Jesus is saying is outdated? What if some of his teachings are just, well, they're no longer relevant? Now I know that not all of you have chosen to follow Jesus. Some of you are skeptics. And you may be interested in Jesus, even in his ethical teachings. But the idea of blindly following somebody who lived 2,000 years ago seems absurd. And I understand, a lot has changed over the years. And 2,000 years is a very long time. But it also challenges you to look closely at the teachings of Jesus, at what he says. Recently, I started a book by a historian who studied the ancient world. And he's admitted that, by the way, he's an atheist, doesn't believe in God even at all. But as he studied the ancient world, he was surprised by how cruel and brutal people were. Now, our world has plenty wrong with it, but he points out that the ancient people were much worse. For instance, they routinely murdered imperfect children. He found stories of how masters abused slaves for their own pleasure, and that wasn't an isolated incident. That was a common practice. He saw how the poor and the weak and the vulnerable had absolutely no protections or rights. But then something changed. A new religious movement swept through the ancient world. It demanded, its teachings revolutionized sex and marriage. It prohibited rape and demanded that men control themselves. It elevated the status of women and children. It taught the culture new values like love and grace and humility. That religious movement it's Christianity. And in less than 300 years, it was the dominant religious faith in the ancient world. A second concern, objection that some raise, is do we really need to follow it all, or can we just pick and choose? Many, including those who would not call themselves Christians, are impressed with the teachings of Jesus. But then they start to say, I like some of them, but not all of them. You see, the things that Jesus says challenges us to our core. And Jesus really neglects no aspect of life. Everything's covered. Money, sex, and power, marriage and parenting, even politics. And what Jesus says about these topics is often very challenging. He isn't easy on us. In fact, he calls us to a radical countercultural way of life. And because Jesus can be so radical, things like love your enemies, abstain from sex before marriage, and give generously, just to name a few, we often listen selectively. But Jesus is clear that we need to follow it all. He doesn't give us an option of picking and choosing the ideas that we like, the ones that conform to what we already believe. Rather, he asks us to listen and obey, and to obey it all. 
There's no middle ground. These are not just nice ethical ideas. They are the will of God for our lives. To follow Jesus means that we will be different from those around us. And so there are only two ways. He says the world's way and God's way. And we have to choose and decide what foundation we'll set our lives on. Now, sometimes we hesitate to obey the words of Jesus because they seem overly restrictive and even foolish to us. So if we obey, even the outright, outright disobey what Jesus says. But Jesus is saying is that if we disobey the words that he says come from God, we do so at our own peril. In fact, the best way, the way most likely to bring us peace is the way that Jesus says he brings for us. Now, it may not always make sense, but we're to obey even when we don't understand, to trust that God knows best, to obey and then ask questions. Which raises yet one more question, and that is, does it work? Now, let me just give you an example. And the example is a little statement that many of you probably heard and even maybe repeated, and that is, honesty is the best policy. But is it really the best policy? Well, of course you say it is, or at least that's the conventional wisdom. But the philosopher Immanuel Kant, who's no friend of Christians, disagreed. He said, honesty isn't just the best policy, it's the only policy. And the reason he was concerned, he said, is if you say honesty is the best policy, then you'll only focus on the times when it works and when it doesn't actually work, when you may abandon honesty. If there's something that you want, something that you need, even something that you think would be good, you will abandon honesty if you think it's the best policy rather than the only policy. Let me give you an example. From my childhood, when I was growing up, I was told that the commandments in the Bible were given us for our good. That is, they work. And one example that was often cited was the Old Testament prohibition around eating pork. So Jewish people, as many of you know, don't eat pork. And the reason that I was given for that particular restriction and prohibition was that if you eat uncooked or or, uh, uh, partially cooked pork, you'll get trichinosis. So this was God's way of protecting the Israelites from getting sick. Now, I got to tell you, I was probably only eight or nine, and this didn't quite make sense to me. For one, we ate pork roast for lunch after church. We ate bacon for breakfast. And then the other thing was, is I thought, why didn't God just tell them to cook it longer? That seemed like an awfully good solution to me. Years later, I was thinking about the commands that God gave the people of Israel and the ones he's given us. And it occurred to me that maybe they don't all need to make sense. Maybe God just wants us to obey. And I know that goes against the grain of everything in our culture. But sometimes I think God wants us to obey just because. Not because it works, but because it's the right thing to do. In other words, obedience is a discipline. It's the willingness to submit to God despite what seems right to us in the moment. Now, don't get me wrong. I do think that honesty is the best policy. But I also think that it's the only policy. I think the moral ethical guidelines that God has for us do make sense. But even when they don't seem to me to make sense, I choose to believe that God can be trusted. That's because we don't see the big picture the way that he does. That's because he is a good God who wants the best for us. And sometimes we have to obey just because. Some of you have read or maybe had read to you the Little House books. The first book in the series is Little House in the Big Woods, and it tells the story of the Ingalls family when they lived actually not too far from here in Lake Pepin, Wisconsin. 
One time Paul went to town to trade furs. It was the middle of the winter, or maybe toward the end of the winter. He'd been trapping. He needed to get the furs there to be able to exchange them for some of the things that they needed. And in order to do this, he left very early in the morning before the sun had risen so that he could get all the way to town, sell his furs, get the things they needed, and come back before dark. But the trip took longer than expected. So Ma asked Laura if she would help her do the evening chores. And that included milking Suki, the family cow. It was dark when they walked to the barn and they came to the barnyard. And Laura's mother just patted Suki on the back to get her to move toward the tent or toward the barn. But instead of Suki's short brown fur, her mother felt long, shaggy black fur. Immediately, her mother said to Laura, very softly, Laura, walk to the house. So Laura turned and walked back to the house, her mother following behind her. And just not too long after that, her mother picked her up and ran to the house, went in the door, and barred the door behind them. And Laura said to her mother, Ma, was that a bear? Yes, Laura, it was, she said. And you were a good girl. You did exactly what I asked you to do and did it quickly without asking why. Now, I don't want you to take from this story that it's never okay to ask questions, that Christianity teaches blind obedience. But it is true that the default we need to have in our lives is to obey even if we don't understand. Listening and obeying establishes a firm foundation for our lives. We need to take what Jesus says seriously, to let his words inform our thinking even when everyone around, them is dis- around us is dismissing them. And to obey, even when humanly speaking, it seems foolish to do what Jesus asks us to do. That's because, as St. Paul once put it, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. What we need to do, what we need to have more than anything, is a firm foundation for our lives. To trust God and obey, even when it seems foolish or unnecessary, or we don't think it'll make a difference. Jesus is the rock on which we stand. He is the power that will sustain us, the peace that will come to us, no matter what comes our way. That's because Jesus can be trusted. He's a firm foundation that will help you weather anything that happens to you. The good news here is that it is never too late to lay a firm foundation, to put ourselves on the rock of Jesus Christ, And then when the winds blow and the floods come, you'll be ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words of Jesus, which guide us into your best for us. Father, may we prove faithful to you and obey your will for our lives. When the storms come, may we trust you. Trust that you will take care of us no matter what comes our way. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.